Hello everyone, welcome to another exciting episode of the New Discourses podcast. We're finally going to finish this monstrosity, Herbert Marcuse's 1969 essay on liberation today. To kind of summarize briefly for you, this is a long essay that he wrote, like I said, in 1969, where he outlines what liberation looks like, what it'll take to get to liberation. It's broken into four parts. Um, and what we've been doing is a series kind of dragged out, not as tight as my series on his 1965 essay, Repressive Tolerance, dragged out reading through the four parts of an essay on liberation. And the first part of this essay is horrifying. The second part is horrifying. The third part is horrifying. And today we'll find out what the fourth part holds in store. So far, the first part is titled A Biological Foundation for Socialism. And in this part of the essay, Marcuse argues that we need to change man at the level of his biological needs. So what I think he means by this, because he says he doesn't literally mean biology, what I think he means by this is psychological conditioned, uh, to make people psychopathological, as a matter of fact, to need liberation from the existing capitalist free society. Um, I think that because he claims he doesn't mean actual like eugenics biology, he says so explicitly in a footnote, but not in the essay itself. And then he talks, though, about changing people at the level of their needs to make them need a fundamentally different kind of world to live in. And that different kind of world, of course, is biological foundation for socialism. So it would be to make them need to live in a socialist super nanny state that's liberated from all systems of oppression, to make it so that they are psychologically incapable of dealing with the oppressive society, repressive society, administered society as he describes it uh, throughout this essay and most of his other work. And so when somebody is incapable, and this is a very simple argument, I think, of coping with life as it is to the point where it has a negative impact on their ability to to live day to day so that they, you might say, have fundamentally different needs or need to live in a fundamentally different society to feel as though they can cope. You're talking about, by definition, having induced psychopathology. And so I'm reading Marcuse not as a eugenicist, which is an easy thing to do, and I don't trust these people at all, so certainly the idea of creating a new biological project in man, a new socialist man or whatever, um, that's tied in with eugenics has been this kind of a thing within, you know, Marxist and communist thought going back all the way to Marx himself. He talked about socialist man and he was talking about a consciousness. Now we see Marcuse about 120 years later. Uh, after Marx is writing about raising this consciousness for the new Soviet man, maybe even actually more like 130, as Marx's earlier writings even refer to Soviet man, uh, or so- socialist man, I'm sorry, Soviet man was a was a Leninist and Stalinist project. Later, uh, we see Marcuse here, some 125 or whatever years later, talking about creating a biological need for socialism to induce a situation in which human beings find it intolerable to live in the so-called repressive free societies of the West and therefore need a socialist state at the, he says, literally at the level of their biological needs. They, They cannot function without having this. So the essay opens up pretty grimly 
with him making this explicit call to remake man at the level of his biological needs. And he says we're going to do so by interjecting a new morality into him so that he finds, and it's a socialist morality or a communist morality, so that he finds the existing world intolerable and cannot live, his, he, at the level of his vital needs, can't tolerate the idea that we live in the society. So again, I interpret this essay as him saying that in order to achieve liberation, which is a newfangled neo-Marx, Marxian term for um, for communism to achieve liberation. He says a liberated society is like socialism without the bureaucracies. So to achieve this liberation, which means communism, that we have to start by inducing psychopathologies in as many people as possible under the guise of raising a so-called critical consciousness. This meshes with his other work. You can read his 1964 book, One Dimensional Man. You get the same vibe. He's talking about how everybody's been flattened into a one-dimensional society and that you have to awaken this second dimension, this critical consciousness, to get them to understand that there's more to life than the one-dimensional, administered, repressive, oppressive, capitalist, consumer society. And here he has you know, a biological foundation for socialism. Then in the second part, he says that even this isn't going to be enough. What we actually need to do to awaken a full liberated consciousness is to induce a new sensibility. So he's trying to analyze two things at once here. And this was very typical of neo-Marxism. I used to say post-World War II. I'm now more convinced that it's post the confessions uh, that Khrushchev laid on about Stalin and the Soviet regime. So communists took a major blow in the 1950s when Khrushchev came out and confessed to Stalin's crimes. The, the Soviet dream was over, and you can get the flavor of this when you read You get it very clearly in One Dimensional Man, which I just mentioned, but you also get it here in this essay on liberation that he wrote a few years later. And what you see is him looking at capitalist society on the one hand and the failures of socialist communism on the other hand and trying to figure out how do we salvage the communist ideal, the communist faith, really? How do we salvage this from this wreckage? Capitalism repels it. Capitalist people, free people, don't want it. But on the other hand, where it's been implemented in the Soviet Union in particular is a catastrophe. And so here I yelled as I read through different parts of this essay. He's praising the movement in China. Remember, this is in 1969 that he's writing this. Mao's cultural revolution is happening as he writes this, and he's praising the revolution in China that's going. It ends up killing maybe 100 million people. It was a catastrophe as well. All of these things are catastrophes, but he's looking for a way to salvage communism from the failures of Soviet-style Leninist Marxism or Stalinist uh, tyranny. And Khrushchev has come out and told this. This is the condition that he's in. So he's trying to say what happened was that there's a sensibility that goes with the world, whether that's in the peasant society that precedes the Soviet Republic, whether that's in capitalist society. These would be stages three and four in uh, Marx's belief about the the history the trajectory of history through material conditions that there's for 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 Marcuse there's a sensibility people have a kind of common view of what is and what is not sensible they he like Paulo Ferreri in Brazil the marxist educator who is the grandfather of um critical pedagogy that has ruined our school systems uh believes 
that um, what you actually have to do is to awaken this consciousness and that if you don't change the fundamental way of thinking that domination is going to reproduce itself after the revolution. So it has to be for Marcuse a great refusal and a total break from the previous order. And he says it's virtually impossible even to imagine it. And so he's looking at these failure, failures of the Soviet Republic and he's saying, here's what happened. They kept the same sensibility of domination and carried it forward and became dominators themselves. He can't possibly see that this is A, human nature, and B, exactly what the kinds of horrific idiots that would try to run a Soviet revolution would do in the first place, or a communist revolution would do in the first place. He's so almost blithely naive to how human beings actually operate. And, of course, he wants to remake humans to not operate this way. That's the point of the first section. So now we need, he says, a new sensibility. There's a total break from the previous order, a new way of thinking. And then I've made the case now that I think that what filled in that gap, that new sensibility that has arisen, it won't work this time. So Marcuse would say it's not the real article if he were still alive. But the thing that has arisen is, in fact, intersectionality. Intersectionality is at the simplest expression that you must constantly engage your so-called positionality. Your positionality is how you relate, where your social position is against all of the various systems of power that neo-Marxist and identity politics see in the world, whether that's classism, which they don't care that much about, or racism, sexism, patriarchy and misogyny, uh, attached to that cis-heteronormativity, um, thin normativity, ableism, disableism, all of these so-called systems of power, uh, capitalism itself, you have to place yourself in your social position against these, how you relate. They call it a relational, uh, they say it has to be analyzed relationally. Power and privilege are re relational to where you stand in this social order, uh, to these systems of power. And so intersectionality in its simplest expression is the belief that you must always engage that positionality. In other words, who you are and your standing in the social hierarchy against these alleged systems of power determines more or less everything about you. Structural determinism follows from that. You are, you know, to have an authentic voice, you have to speak into what the critical theory of that particular set of identity category says. So you have to preface everything with as a man or as a black or as a Latino or as a queer or as a whatever. And it's not a slur, by the way, that's a queer political identity. You have to preface yourself with everything because the truth or falsity, the value, the, the moral valence of what you have to say depends intricately on who you happen to be and who you are politically against who you happen to be. And that's the whole point of mapping the margins at the end where Kimberly Crenshaw is really introducing intersectionality to the world. The end, she talks about this paragraph where I am black is to be forwarded over I'm a person who happens to be black. The problem with I'm a person who happens to be black is that it's, she says, strives for a certain universality that ignores the imposition of racial categories. I am black, she says, is a discourse of positive identity. It's fruitful for identity politics, and it's fruitful for a critical theory of race. She doesn't say that last part explicitly in um, mapping the margins, but that's what her deal is. So we have to have this new sensibility. And I argue that intersectionality is the thing where we constantly think in terms of power relations, who you are, 
who you happen to be and what your politics are relevant to that mean everything in terms of the truth or falsity, moral moral uh, standing of what you have to say. This, of course, gives them an infinite capacity to drain all moral and epistemic authority from everybody, which is exactly what I've said repeatedly critical theories exist to do. They, other than to induce the psychopathologies that we see in the first part of this essay, because... Um, Either you don't understand the systems or you are, so the truth and falsity of your statements, you don't understand why identity matters to that, because of course it doesn't, but that's how they can drain moral authority, or sorry, epistemic authority from you, or you're trying to uphold racism, sexism, cis normativity, or whatever it happens to be, some evil, and cause harm and do trauma and whatever else, so you're a morally evil person, so they can drain you of epistemic or moral authority. And intersectionality is the new sensibility that Marcuse was calling for, except he would say, quite rightly, but not knowing why, because he doesn't understand human nature, that it has already been corrupted and has main has, has started to begin to reproduce the dominating. I would guess he would say this. Maybe he would just be all in on it because his revolution's happening. But he he would say that if he would were consistent, he would say that it is reproducing dominance. So it wasn't the true new sensibility. So we still need the new new sensibility. And um, I will point out by the way that you know he's saying this kind of thing. We talked in the third section of this essay, which is subverting forces in transition. Uh, he talked, and which is a horrible section, actually. It's a, amazing. He makes an argument for ends justifying the means, for leftist endeavors, of course, only. He makes all kinds of horrifying arguments. He backs all kinds of horrifying subverting forces in transi- transition. But he also identifies the new left movement that he's spawning that gives rise to the critical legal theory movement, for example. That gives rise to critical race theory eventually down the track. He argues that we have to fuse these critical theory movements, the leftist intelligentsia with the, the especially the young students, with the minority populations, the ghetto population, as he puts it. We have to tap into them. He's creating a new bourgeoisie is what he's doing. Or sorry, not bourgeoisie, proletariat. He's looking at the situation. He's saying the old proletariat, the working class, has lost its revolutionary energy because society works. He's complaining constantly about these functioning societies. And then he says, we need a new proletariat, and he's going to find that in the racial minorities combined with the student movement, the leftist intelligentsia. And again, he's praising China in this essay and a student-led movement there with very similar uh, background behind it as raging a cultural revolution in China that's destroying their country and going to lead to the deaths of possibly 100 million people or more. Uh, in China, nobody knows how many, but maybe at least ten, at least tens of millions, and maybe a hundred million people. And he's praising that, presumably unaware of how badly it's actually going in this section. But he also says that this forces, and this was the point I wanted to get to. He also says that this forces the the movement he's putting, he's pushing in this new left to be clownish. He actually calls it clownish forms that irritate the establishment. He actually calls, therefore, he doesn't use the word clown world, but he describes what his his movement is as his clown world. It, it takes clownish forms, and he's proud of that, and it's supposed to be a good thing because it's subverting of the established order, and they don't know what to do with it. And this is, of course, echoing off of that new sensibility and the, the vital needs. This is what, I, you know, I'm just riffing off of all of the things they throw at me. 
So, you know, we got clown world. Well, if you live in clown world, you have clown life. And this is what he's saying. Um, clown life, by the way, if you don't know why I've started to say that, is if you put one of these kind of smart threads on Twitter, all the angry leftists pop up in your mentions or your whatever and tell you the park life, which is a song where somebody was like jabbering philosophically nonsense. And they're basically saying that you're just, you know, overcooking the philosophical books and just it, that you're, you're this kind of, a, you know, overthinking it dork so clown life and so that's what he's actually describing that's your leftist intelligentsia fusing with these people to produce clown life but he's actually producing a new proletariat energy that's going to do the new revolution which is where now we step out of marx and his dictatorship of the proletariat we have marcuse's new cobbled together identity politics forces to create a new proletariat and what we're going to end up with is like an ibram kendi's stupid anti-racist constitutional amendment or whatever that he wants to pass with the Department of Anti-Racism that has total authority over all levels of the government, private interests, and the thoughts of public intel, uh, public officials, where that's going to be broadly defined, a dictatorship of the anti-racists. And if you want, you can switch into trans, it's going to be a dictatorship of the queer theorists of some sort or another, a dictatorship of the homonormative or the the trans homonormative or whatever whatever is outside of cis-heteronormativity. And we could do it within all of the other branches and this is the thing he's cobbled together as a new site of revolutionary energy and that's really what the third section of this essay is about now i didn't actually get to my point the point that i was going to make is trying to diagnose maybe what marcuse would do with the woke movement now against the new sensibility thing is that in the 1970s i think in 77 or 8 he died in 79 so very near the end of his life he cut it gets put on a a interview program with Brian McGee and philosophical questions or something like this is what it was called. I'd, I'd have to look that up, but you can look it up very easily. Herbert Marcuse interview with Brian McGee, M-A-G-E-E, um, from either 77 or 78. I've seen both dates attached to it, so I'm not sure if it was recorded at one and aired at the other. I don't know. Thereabouts, very close to the end of his life. And in the first segment of that interview, in the first like 10 minutes, um, I think it's like six or seven minutes in, McGee holds Marcuse's feet to the fire and he says the movement you created is anti-intellectual so already by just 10 years out of this essay or less within 10 years of this essay and the previous essays you know within 15 years of one-dimensional man certainly you have Marcuse's new left new proletariat new sensibility developing biological foundation for socialism movement getting accused of being anti-intellectual and Marcuse does not deny this charge and that's the point this clown world thing it's like he kind of knows it's a problem because he says oh i've been against his response is i've been against the anti-intellectualism from the beginning i wanted it to be very intellectual and led by the 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 leftist intelligentsia the students the student phds and blah 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 and so he's he knows that it, that it went off the rails. And so that's why I have to guess that if he were to diagnose intersectionality now, he would say they had promised to become the new sensibility and it pointed in the right direction, but it really wasn't the new sensibility because it didn't actually do a total break. It wasn't a great refusal of the modes of domination of, of the past. And so it has reproduced them and is becoming dominating itself. But he would still believe, based on the best I can guess of reading him, that the leftist ethos behind intersectionality is exactly what's needed and that is the right direction for a new sensibility but that it's been corrupted by corporate interests that have bought into it with woke incorporated for example uh, that it's been corrupted by uh, 
people getting involved who wanted power and they reproduced domination, etc. You get the same thing, actually, if you read Kimberly Crenshaw, where she complains that intersectionality memed and got away. There's actually all these papers from the last, I don't know, there's a, a bunch of them that were from like 2006 to 2016 or so, where they talk about the meme of intersectionality having gotten away from its original intention. And so you can already see them setting up the stage with, you know, if we look at woke as the next in incarnation of communism, which is what it is, that they're going to be able to see real communism never was tried. And the reason that they'll be able to say that is because the new sensibility that it depended upon never came into existence. So this is a huge long summary so far. And I feel like I can take this liberty to do a big summary of the essay overall, partly because we're at the last section, but also hallelujah, praise be to God. The fourth section of this essay is actually pretty short. Most of these episodes have been three three hours plus or two and a half hours plus. This one shouldn't be that long. So now we have a huge summary of what this essay is, where it was, where it comes from. And now we move on to the last section, section four, solidarity. And so solidarity, this is a key word, right? So look at the structure of, of this essay before we dive in. A biological foundation for socialism, he says. So in other words, we're going to do psychopathology in order to create the revolutionary energy that we need. This is going to be misfits who can't fit in with the existing society and cannot function day-to-day -day life without their liberation. So we're going to induce that by interjecting a new morality. This is going to give rise to creating a new sensibility that breaks totally with the, the patterns of the past. Now we're going to enter into a very clownish uh, subverting movement uh, that he's calling for. And then the thing that this is, again, why intersectionality becomes such the obvious candidate for the new sensibility is because the thing that's supposed to cobble together intersectionality is solidarity. And section four of this essay calls for solidarity. And so it's not that hard to put the pieces together to figure out what's going on um, to connect this blatantly insane neo-Marxism almost desperate neo-Marxism of the late 1960s to the intersectional movement, the woke movement of today. So let me just speak briefly. Intersectionality is the probably the single most divisive concept that's ever been made. And it does not bring people together. It's in fact impossible. I have this whole thing I'm doing about having against this new sensibility to having a common sensibility that we understand one another again without the identity politics, without the fractured, balkanized identity first thinking that intersectionality depends on. I am a person who happens to be black, which strives for a certain universality, even if it doesn't achieve it, is far better than diving into politically valent identities and amplifying those and then claiming there's a unique voice of color associated with them. Under critical race theory, for example, under critical race theory, for example, it is not possible to have a common sensibility across the races. There just isn't such a thing because your voice as a white person or as a black person or as a Latino or as an indigenous person or whatever it happens to be is unique to that in the way that the critical theory explains the power dynamic. So there is no common sensibility across the races. This is why you see things like in whiteness studies where you it, it says that, that white people can never understand the systemic oppression of anti-blackness, that they constantly reproduce, etc. And this extends within the concept of, you know, brown fragility or white fragility is, of course, this, but even within brown fragility, you cannot possibly understand what your complicity in white supremacy and anti-blackness actually looks like, even if you're brown, even if you're white, even if you're Asian and yellow or whatever they want to call you, whatever, whatever labels they want to use. This is why you have the fighting between BIPOC and IBPOC, and even within BIPOC itself, what BIPOC stands for. Does BIPOC stand for black 
indigenous person of color, which means black or indigenous, I guess, person of color, or does it stand for black and indigenous, black, indigenous, and people of color, which is a more inclusive thing, but then highlights the black and indigenous. And then IBPOC puts the indigenous first versus black, and they're going to fight over who's going to be more oppressed and therefore more deserving of being put in the front. If I'm not mistaken, there was a recent expansion of this further, um, something with a, uh, where they specify something like non-black people or something like this. It's like black, indigenous, non-black people of color or something. Like they've had to just continue to do this and expand it. It's the most divisive thing in the entire freaking universe. And we could do this with the sexuality stuff. We could talk about how the lesbians, the gays, the bisexuals, the trans, the queers are all fighting with each other on various levels. The trans and the feminists are fighting with each other on huge levels. We can just go on and on and on. The, the incompatibility of queer theory and race theory, for example, where they have to rule as left and right hand separate from one another. The whole thing is a clown car of incompatibility and of forcing people to think in terms of their identities and why their identities are special and oppressed and therefore have to be in this relational new hierarchy called intersectionality that intersectionality outlines we could call it intersectionality we could call it positionality we could call it the matrix of domination like patricia collins did in the 90s um and the thing that's supposed to glue all this crap together is solidarity now just as a, a tangential aside solidarity feminism is what we called for in the fake grievance studies affair paper that we when we rewrote uh, a chapter of mein kampf of hitler's uh his him Hitler's uh what do I want to call it his rage inducing or induced memoir or whatever it is this is manifesto really so in in Mein Kampf we took the chapter where he's organizing the Nazi party and it has all this stuff about all these sacrifices you have to make and how you have to have basically total allegiance to the movement and blah 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 and like eh, just solidarity okay and then at first we actually wrote the first draft of this with allyship and they told us that we needed to nuance around allyship that allyship itself is fraught with power dynamics that we hadn't successfully interrogated so then the beginning of the paper became very long where we had to go into all this scholarship about allyship and how allyship's a problem and then solidarity was supposed to be the glue that held the intersectional feminist movement together and so here we find solidarity in 1969 and you know he's of course looking at liberation he's involved with all these kind of liberation movements whether these are the ones in vietnam whether the ones in south and latin uh, throughout south america and central america uh whether it's his stupid you know gay liberation black liberation all these radical liberation things happening in the united states women's liberation all these liberation things he's trying to cobble together into his new proletariat with a new sensibility so they can be subverting forces in transition that are creating in their people a biological foundation for a liberated socialism blah 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 he's calling for solidarity as the glue that's going to make all this work the liberation depends on this bogus concept of solidarity solidarity in a, in a theoretical construct that's totally and completely and i mean totally and completely devoted to thinking in the most self-interested narcissistic way possible except that you're always supposed to pass the buck to say oh no someone else has it worse as is even more oppression than i do so i'm evil and uphold that that's the whole structure of intersectionality you're like look how oppressed i am and then i'm still oppressing other people so i'm guilty of this sin as well religion 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 Okay, so intersectionality is a extraordinarily divisive project. There is no such thing as a common sensibility under an intersectional sensibility, which is what Crenshaw calls. She actually describes intersectionality as a intersectional sensibility uh, in mapping the margins. So from very early on, she has another paper in 2016 with somebody else that she talks about it even more. Um, and in between, it gets mentioned as a sensibility as well. 
Intersectional sensibility is not a common sensibility. There's no common sensibility. And the glue that's supposed to hold it together is solidarity. And so here we have chapter or section four of Essay on Liberation from Herbert Marcuse in 1969 for solidarity. And so he's summarizing. It's obviously a conclusion to the essay because he begins by writing the preceding attempt to analyze the present opposition to the society organized by corporate capitalism was focused on the striking contrast between the radical and the total character of the rebellion on the one hand and the absence of a class basis for this radicalism on the other. So this is what I was just explaining a a few moments ago. He's saying the class basis isn't there anymore. You have this radical movement starting up. It's starting up big time. It's radical and total character of the rebellion. And it is, that's the rebellion that's seeking liberation, his liberation movement, but that it has an absence of a class basis. It's mostly upper class and middle upper class, um, or upper middle class, I should say, uh, students that have the energy. And then they're going in and agitating these minority groups, these dispossessed, uh, angry people within the, the various minority groups to try to create a new proletariat. That's what he's actually talking about here. And so solidarity is what's going to glue this thing together. You can see the seeds of intersectionality right here if you know what to look for. This situation, Marcuse tells us, gives all efforts to evaluate and even discuss the prospects for radical change in the domain of corporate capitalism, their abstract academic unreal character. So we're looking for a complete radical change. Um, But he says the situation that we face, because there's no class basis here, the old proletariat's not there, and we're going to take on corporate capitalism, we end up with this abstract, academic, and unreal (laughs) clown world, uh, unreal, this very detached academic thing. Well, look at what wokery is, right? It's the most stupidly academic thing ever. So he's going to, there's that critique. Like I said, he would have all kinds of criticisms for why these people that followed in his wake for the last 50 years and have created his world that he was envisioning did it wrong so that he couldn't possibly be wrong. And real Marcusean communism has never been tried. The excuse is already built in. Um, He says, the search for specific historical agents of revolutionary change in the advanced capitalist countries is indeed meaningless. Revolutionary forces emerge in the process of change itself. The translation of the potential into the actual is the work of political practice. That's, by the way, a Hegelian statement. It's it's a nod to Hegel, the, the potential changing into the actual, that it's the work of, do the work of political practice. They're trying to take take the potential communism and turn it into the actual. And that is the work, do the work, become conscious, whatever, potential consciousness, make it actual, do the work of political practice. And just as little as critical theory can political practice, this has got to be, it's got to have a mistake in it. I think this thing was scanned, by the way, Uh, but I'm just going to read what it says and we're going to try to figure it out together. And just as little as critical theory can can political practice or it has to be as a political practice orient itself on a concept of revolution, which belongs to the 19th and early 20th century. So we're now we're talking about Marxism. He just doesn't name it and which is still valid in large areas of the third world. 
This concept envisages the seizure of power in the course of a mass upheaval, led by a revolutionary party acting as the avant-garde of a revolutionary class and setting up a new central power which would initiate the basic social changes. That's your dictatorship of the proletariat. So he's saying that the old model was, for critical theory even, was to create this revolutionary party, this revolutionary class, and set up a new central power, he says, which would initiate the basic social changes. In other words, establish a dictatorship of the proletariat, usher us into an era of socialism, and that would work its way out to communism. That's basic Marx, Marxian theory. He says, even in industrial countries where a strong Marxist party has organized the exploited masses, strategy is no longer guided by this notion. Witness the long-range communist policy of popular fronts. And the concept is altogether inapplicable to those countries in which the integration of the working class is the result of structural economic political processes, sustained high productivity, large markets, neocolonialism, administered democracy, and where the masses themselves are forces of conservatism and stabilization. It is the very power of this society which contains new modes and dimensions of radical change. And so he's saying everywhere this has been tried, it's not working because the strategy is not being guided by the correct theory. Um, and he really cuts it out in, in, in successful capitalist countries, right? It's altogether inapplicable, he says, in countries where the integration of the working class is a result of basically a successful economy, sustained high, high productivity, large markets. He blames neocolonialism and administered democracy, which is kind of funny because, right, this is the... We keep saying this. This is the kind of fundamental contradiction of reading Marcuse in the present era is that he, these criticisms, which he was laying out in the 60s, the late 60s, when the kind of what we might refer to cryptically now as the deep state had already kind of been established, like he would be looking at that and saying, this is messed up this is, and this thing is going to grow. But this thing actually incorporated all of his tools. It picked up his tools and his successors tools as the weapons to protect itself and he would say well that's why a new sensibility never emerged blah 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 his theory is never wrong but it's just that he doesn't understand human nature whatsoever um he says it is the very power of this society which contains new modes and dimensions of radical change that's where we finish that paragraph the dynamic of this society he says has long since passed the stage where it could grow on its own resources its own market on normal trade with other areas. It has grown into an imperialist power, which through economic and technical penetration and outright military intervention, has transformed large parts of the third world into dependencies. So I just mentioned the deep state thing, and he's kind of like the military industrial complex. If he's criticizing this, the criticisms of this are probably accurate. He just doesn't have a solution. Its policy is distinguished, he says, from classical imperialism of the preceding period by effective use of economic and technical conquests on the one hand, and by the political strategic character of intervention on the other. Now, in the wake of the recent debacle in Afghanistan, we're all going to be kind of aware. Like, he's not just talking out of left field here. He's actually not insane. It's going to be his, it's not his analysis of this that's the problem. It's his blind spot for communism on the one hand and his lack of a good solution on the other. Because remember, he's praising China in this, and China is doing exactly everything he's accusing. It, China's revolution created the opportunity for China to do all of this on a massive global scale. So he he's not wrong in his critique, and this is how he, stuff can be so seductive for people, but he's completely wrong in what is in what 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 he, what he should do with that critique, because he's got this huge blind spot for communism. And he also has a huge um, 
blind spot for all of these leftist movements that, in general. Uh, and he really wants this new world to come into being. So his, his prescriptions are terrible. But his 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 analysis here of the time, he was you could see him as an early warner, uh, somebody doing an early warning of you know what has become this monstrous deep state that's now collapsed. You know, and its policy, it's, what does it say here? Um, the the uh, political strategic character of intervention on the other in Afghanistan. He says the requirements of the global fight against communism supersede those of profitable investments. So here he's now tagging it because he's mostly interested in looking at Vietnam, that this is all a huge fight against communism, which is his pet baby that he wants to have succeed. And uh, he's seeing all of the military industrial complex and all of its machinations and the emergence of the so-called deep state as being an enemy to communism. But that's exactly what the communists co-opted and now have become. Uh, of course, they would have if they could have. And that's exactly, you know, he, he's an idealist in the sense that he believed that that could be avoided, I guess. But he just doesn't understand what he's working with. Um, and he wants to protect communism. In any case, he says, by virtue of the evolution of imperialism, the developments in the third world pertain to the dynamic of the first world, and the forces of change in the former are not extraneous to the latter. The external proletariat is a basic factor of potential change within the dominion of corporate capitalism. Okay, so here's what's really going on. He's looking for this new proletariat, right? So he's like, oh, we're going to look to an external proletariat. We already talked about the minorities, the ghetto population, so on. And now he's talking about the external population. So this is how post-colonial theory is going to be able to cobble right onto this. And post-colonial theory is being forged, deeply forged. Post-colonialism is coming into being in a very Hegelian way. For, in for instance, Franz Fanon was a gigantic Hegelian. You can read that very clearly in all of his books. Um, he doesn't deny it. He doesn't hide it. It's not like, aha, we found it. This is same lines of thought, but a very radical post-colonialist post-colonial theories coming into four in these liberation movement, third world, as he calls it here, contexts that, and, and Marcuse is going to call for an extra solidarity there. So this is how post-colonial theory, as it emerged, and as we documented in Cynical Theories, it's a very heavily postmodern theory, in addition to being a, you know, um, neo-Marxist, or at least very Hegelian theory. Um, this is the fusion of neo-Marxism onto it, really, and then it takes up a ton of postmodernism by, by the time Edward Said takes it up, uh, Gayatri Spivak, who translated Derrida, um, Homi Baba, the unreadable, uh, all very heavily postmodern. So this is where you're starting to see, oh, the solidarity needs to be between the first world and the third world because we have an external proletariat there. So we're cobbling together a global movement why do you see all this stuff about migrants? Why do you see all this stuff in the news? Why is the World Economic Forum and the, so interested in like everything to do with immigration? Why are there so many open borders? Why is George Soros' thing called the Open Society Foundation? And he's so interested in having open border-free societies. Why do you think they're always arguing, the leftists these days, that borders shouldn't exist? This is why. This is the new left forging that in the 1960s. And so there's going to be solidarity from the leftist intelligentsia and th that movement here, why do you think there's so much with with Palestine? They're 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 going to have this leftist intelligentsia here in the first world that's now going to cobble together with the external proletariat of the third world people who are being exposed to this interventionism, etc. And so what I'm reading Marcuse here is that communist strategy in the 1960s is going to be let's 
make those into mass lines of action that were going to be able to challenge the so-called first world. In other words, the dominion of corporate capitalism. And so Marcuse writes, here is the coincidence of the historical factors of revolution. This predominantly agrarian proletariat, this is again people in the third world, endures the dual oppression exercised by the indigenous ruling classes and those of foreign metropoles. So you could imagine that maybe the case is India, for example, that they have their own system of oppression, and then you have the British coming in and imposing a system of oppression on top of that, that in some ways colludes with the existing system and in some ways oppresses it too. Um, a liberal bourgeoisie, which would ally itself with the poor and lead their struggle, does not exist. The liberal bourgeoisie, which would ally itself with the poor and lead their struggle, does not exist. Kept in abject material and mental privation, they depend on a militant leadership. Since the vast majority outside the cities is unable to mount any concerted economic and political action which would threaten the existing society, the struggle for liberation will be predominantly a predominantly military one, carried out with the support of the local population and exploiting the, adv the advantages of terrain which impedes traditional methods of su suppression. So we're thinking guerrilla warfare, we're looking, I would, I, I can guarantee you, he's looking at the Viet Cong in, in Vietnam and thinking this, he's looking at the, uh, the Che Guevara, he's looking at the, the, the various uh, liberation armies going through South and Central America and their use of guerrilla warfare. And he's saying, uh-huh, this is what liberation has to look like, and we have to think about this in terms of what we're trying to do. Um, these circumstances of necessity make for guerrilla warfare. It is the great chance and at the same time the terrible danger for the forces of liberation. The powers that be will not tolerate a repetition of the Cuban example. They will employ ever more effective means and weapons of suppression, and the indigenous dictatorships will be strengthened with ever more active aid from the imperialist metropoles. So the deep state going into an endless intervention, uh, A, to stop communism, and B, to stop these actually horrific liberation fronts from gaining power because they're all also horrific. It would be romanticism to under to underrate the strength of this deadly alliance and its resolution to contain subversion. It seems that not the features of the terrain, nor the unimaginable resistance of the men and women of Vietnam, nor considerations of world opinion, but fear of other nuclear powers has so far so far prevented the use of nuclear or semi-nuclear weapons against a whole people and a whole country. I don't know if that's actually true, but anyway. Uh, he's saying that the only reason we're not nuking um, a country like Vietnam or whatever uh, is because we're afraid that there would be counter-nukes, a whole nuclear war would break out and destroy everything. Maybe that's true. I don't know how how hot and heavy people were to, to drop nukes in the 60s and the 50s. Um, the Cold War was not a good or comfortable time. Under these circumstances, he tells us, the preconditions for the liberation and development of the third world must emerge in the advanced capitalist countries. That's an interesting proposition. The preconditions for the liberation and development of the third world must emerge in the advanced capitalist countries. Only the internal weakening of the superpower can finally stop the financing and equipping of suppression in the backwards countries. The national liberation fronts threaten the lifeline of imperialism. 
They're not only a material, but also an ideological catalyst of change. The Cuban Revolution and the Viet Cong have demonstrated it can be done. There is a morality, a humanity, a will, and a faith which can resist and deter the gigantic technical and economic force of capitalist expansion. There's a lot that he's trying to say there. So you can see which side of this thing, these, these things he's on. Because he's a communist, because he hates capitalism, he sees capitalism as trying to expand. He sees all of the activities of the so-called deep state as resisting communism, which he basically connects to liberation because that's what it is. And he says that it's all about threatening the lifeline of imperialism and because they're material and ideological catalysts of change. So they might upset the whole apple cart. And he says, so it this can be done. It happened in Cuba. The Viet Cong are doing it. Uh, and he calls what was happening there a morality, a humanity, a will, and a faith. And when we think of this in light of what just happened in Afghanistan with the Taliban, which was just a few days ago, I'm recording this, you kind of get the impression that, you know, you know, there's this weird situation where you're like, yeah, you know, massive military force, imperial, shouldn't be there, blah, 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 policemen to the world. But then now we're stuck face to face in reality yet again. You know, he said he mentions the Viet Cong, the, the 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 fall of Kabul is being compared to the fall of Saigon, uh, for very good reason, and we're now put face to face for the first time in a while, uh, in a couple decades, with the possibility now that the Taliban are hard to conceive of as good guys, and what they're going to do, how they're going to run uh, Afghanistan, what they're going to do with that. Um, but we know what side Marcuse would have been on because it's stopping the gigantic technical and economic force of capitalist expansion, say, into Afghanistan, which he would then characterize partly rightly and partly wrongly um, because there are other stability issues involved uh, as, as a matter of protecting access to the rare earth metals under Afghanistan, which value in the trillions and are critical to you know most of our new technology, especially batteries and things like that. But of course, now on the other hand, what he would be blind to, if I had to guess, is that China is going to do the same thing, um, which is not the economic force of capitalist expansion. So we would have a paragraph here if this was written today where Marcuse goes into current events of Afghanistan and he brings up China and he talks about how China has been polluted itself by letting some capitalism in, blah, blah, blah. But ultimately he's on the side of China because the revolution there, the people like he argued about the Soviets are closer to socialism and the kind of liberated view of the world. And they're implementing those, those, policies more effectively and the people are more ready for them than in the horrible capitalist western countries so you can almost guess which side of everything in the world that right now is going on that herbert marcuse would be well relentlessly complaining about everything ruthlessly complaining about it so he says more than the socialist humanism of the early Marx, this violent solidarity in defense, this elemental socialism in action, has given form and substance. I remember we're talking about like the Viet Cong and, and these liberation, national liberation fronts. Uh, this elemental socialism in action has given form and substance to the radicalism of the new left, his movement. This ideological respect in this ideological respect, too, the external revolution has become an essential part of the opposition within capitalist metropoles. However, the exemplary force, the ideological power of the external revolution can come to fruition only if the internal structure and cohesion of the capitalist system begins to disintegrate. The chain of exploitation must break at its strongest link. So he's saying his movement, this 
new left is drawing massive ideological and strategic um, ideas, uh, background from these National Liberation Fronts, the Viet Cong, and so on. Okay, he's saying, oh, the substance, the form and substance of the radicalism of his critical theory-based new left, which is, like I said, where things like critical race theory came from. It's the, it's the new left who became professors, who created all this crap in the universities in the first place. And he's saying that the form and substance of the radicalism in the new left is coming by looking not so much from Marx, he's saying, in it, the socialist humanism of early Marx. No, this violent solidarity and defense. This is the elemental socialism in action. This is what it looks like. The National Liberation Fronts, the Viet Cong, the Cuban Revolution. We would easily add Che Guevara here. And that's where you see the worship of those characters from new left-leaning people, right? And he says, however, the exemplary force, the ideological power of the external revolution can come to fruition only if the internal structure and cohesion of the capitalist system begin to disintegrate. So he's going to call for, in his new left way, the some the ideological guerrilla warfare against the capitalist system from within the chain of exploitation he says must break at its strongest link corporate capitalism is not immune against economic crisis so he's laying strategy the huge defense sector that's in scare quotes of the economy not only places an increasingly heavy burden on the taxpayer it is also largely responsible for the narrowing margin of profit the growing opposition against the war in Vietnam points up the necessity of a thorough conversion of the economy, risking the danger of rising unemployment, which is a byproduct of technical progress and automation. The so-called, in scare quotes, the peaceful creation of additional outlets for the productivity of the metropoles would meet with the intensified resistance in the third world and with the contesting and competitive strength of the Soviet orbit. The absorption of unemployment and the maintenance of an adequate rate of profit would thus require the stimulation of demand on an ever larger scale, thereby stimulating the rat race of the competitive struggle for existence through the multiplication of waste, planned obsolescence, parasitic, and stupid jobs and services. The higher standard of living propelled by the growing parasitic sector of the economy would drive wage demands toward capital's point of no return. So this is kind of predictive of what's going on, but then again, you would say, well, that's because this is exactly what got implemented. They took this up. They said, here he is complaining about how things work. He's actually giving a strategy to destroy America and the West. Corporate capitalism is not immune against economic crisis. He's talking about doing guerrilla warfare against corporate capitalism. What do you think the plan is going to be? So what do we have? You know, he says uh, defense sector increasingly heavy burden on the taxpayer. So the people who picked up these ideas, maybe some of them were neocons, former Trotskyites who found a Bible or something like that and pretended to believe it, put on suits and waged these wars around the world. Maybe those people realized that you could break America, you could break the West, if you just fight a bunch of pointless, expensive wars which then can be blamed on resource acquisition and named in spreading democracy around the world and given all these positive uh, positive points that people will back up. Hmm. 
not to sound too conspiratorial, but you can almost see the roadmap here, right? And he says, look, the growing opposition to the war in Vietnam points up the necessity. Rising unemployment. That's coming from automation. More of that's going to be a problem. Peaceful creation, he says, of additional outlets for the productivity of the metropoles would meet with the intensified resistance of the third world. That's exactly what's going on. And with the contesting and competitive strength of the Soviet orbit. Well, that made it about 20 more years. Uh, but it's been replaced with the Chinese orbit now. Okay, and so here's a key sentence. The absorption of unemployment and the maintenance of an adequate rate of profit would thus require the stimulation of demand on an ever larger scale, thereby stimulating the rat race of the competitive struggle for existence through the multiplication of waste, planned obsolescence, parasitic, and stupid jobs and services. And what we have to fill that in right now, people who have read Marcuse, no doubt, have said, oh, well, what we need is a circular economy. What we need is stakeholder capitalism that understands all the players in stake that are the, that have a stake in all of this and they can plan it intelligently in a communo-fascist way. In the stakeholder economy, this is the point of the Great Reset. This circular economy is their goal. Their symbol is a circular, an image of a circular economy. But if you just go read anything about the Great Reset, it's talking about creating a circular economy that's going to avoid that sentence. They believed what he said, the absorption of unemployment, the maintenance of an adequate read, rate of profit would thus require the stimulation of demand on an ever larger scale. That's not sustainable. So sustainability measures have to be put into place. This is what's going on. This is the, the this is the roadmap to the world. I keep telling everybody, we live in Herbert Marcuse's world. This is the roadmap to what's trying to be implemented right now with the same exact explanations, the same exact justifications. Look at what's happening in, in Afghanistan. Well, it's a defense sector collapsing. Look at what's happening with automation. It's going to create a useless class, a non-essential class, if you will, of people. Look at the tension that's rising between big cities throughout the Western world and the impoverished third world and all of its refugee status problems and everything else. Look at how there's a they said Soviet, but it's Chinese now, you know, this this competitive strength of this other Soviet style or now Chinese CCP style enemy that, that is, catches us in the pincher. That's the foil against which if you if you take the, say, Open Society Foundation or the um, World Economic Forum at its word, which is a risky thing to do, they contend that they are not down with the CCP and they're trying to create a competitor to that. They might defeat it on its own terms by outcompeting it with autocracy, etc. But we're also going to avoid this Higher standard of living propelled by the growing parasitic sector of the economy would drive, drive wage demands toward capital's point of no return. That could be straight off of that World Economic Forum uh, Great Reset video. The values of Western civilization have been pushed to their breaking point. And he says, but the structural tendencies which determine the development of corporate capitalism do not justify the assumption aggravated class struggles would terminate in a socialist revolution through organized political action. To be sure, even the most advanced capitalist welfare state remains a class society and therefore a state of conflicting class interests. However, prior to the disintegration of the state power, the apparatus and the support, suppressive force of the system would keep the class struggle within the capitalist framework. The transition of the economic into the radical political struggle would be the consequence rather than the cause of change isn't that woke ink the change itself could then occur in a general unstructured unorganized and diffused process of disintegration 
This process might be sparked by a crisis of the system, COVID-19, which would activate the resistance not only against the political, but also against the mental repression imposed by the society. Its insane features, expression of the ever more blatant contradiction between the available resources for liberation and their use for the perpetuation of servitude, would undermine the daily routine, repressive conformity, and rationality required for the continued functioning of the society. Told you we live in Marcuse's world. The dissolution of social morality may manifest itself in a collapse of work discipline. <laughs> and isn't there a crisis around that right now for COVID? Slowdown, spread of disobedience to rules and regulations, wildcat strikes, boycotts, sabotage, gratuitous acts of noncompliance. The violence built into the system of repression may get out of control or necessitate ever more totalitarian controls. Even the most totalitarian technocratic political administration depends for its functioning on what is usually called the moral fiber, a relatively, scare quotes, positive attitude among the underlying population toward the usefulness of their work and toward the necessity of the repressions and act exacted by the social organization of work. A society depends on the relatively stable and calculable sanity of the people. Sanity, I told you to break the sanity. Sanity defined as the regular, socially coordinated functioning of the mind and body, especially at work, in the shops and offices, but also at leisure and fun. Make sure all of that drives you crazy then. Moreover, society also demands to a considerable extent belief in one's beliefs which is part of the required sanity, belief in the operative value of society's values. Operationalism is indeed an indispensable supplement to want and fear as forces of cohesion. Man. Man. That's our world. I mean, we've already kind of laid it out. It raises the specter of the idea that, the, that, that while intersectionality is this kind of false new sensibility that we're up against because of the woke movement, which is being utilized by this broader world-changing movement, maybe sustainability, ESG, uh, environmental social governance um, requirements, and so on, this stakeholder public-private partnership model becomes the new sensibility that's going to cause the new liberated revolution where everybody gets to not work because the machines do everything after the so-called fourth industrial revolution. Not to sound too much like a conspiracy theorist. Now it is the strength of this moral fiber, he says, of the operational values quite apart from their ideational validity, which is likely to wear off under the impact of the growing contradictions within the society. The result would be a spread not only of discontent and mental sickness, but also of inefficiency, resistance to work, refusal to perform, negligence, indifference, factors of dysfunction, which would hit a highly centralized and coordinated apparatus, where breakdown at one point may easily affect large sections of the whole. To be sure, these are subjective factors, but they may assume material force in conjunction with the objective economic and political strains to which the system will be exposed on a global scale. Then, and only then, that political climate would prevail, which could provide a mass basis for the new forms of organization required for directing the struggle. The Great Reset. This is this is it. This is what the project is. It's right here at the end of an essay on liberation. Their goal is to create this new liberated world 
They're going to manage it with their their circular economy and every other thing. And we're going to avoid the problems you just talked about. And it would have to take a big crisis. We're going to see a breakdown of people, the, uh, mental sickness, inefficiency, resistance to work, refusal to perform, negligence, indifference. All this dysfunction would hit that centralized apparatus, cause a breakdown that could affect large segments of the whole. And these may create exactly the forces necessary, the political climate necessary that, that could provide a mass basis for the new forms of organization. And now you see the world we live in. We live in Herbert Marcuse's world. We've indicated the tendencies. Well, let me pause for a second. Well, everything that I've been saying about this inducing, I mean, listen to this, discontent and mental sickness. That's what critical theory is there. To, that's what all they've done is spent 50 years generating that inefficiency, resistance to work, refusal to perform, negligence, indifference, dysfunction. They've spent 50 years generating that so that this breakdown would come because it would create a political climate that will prevail, which could provide a mass basis for new forms of organization required for directing the struggle. Directing the struggle sounds like there's going to be new forms of domination, which is exactly what we're experiencing. But anyway, we've indicated, he says, the tendencies which threaten the stability of the imperialist society and emphasize the extent to which the liberation movements in the third world affect the prospective development of this society. It is to an ever greater extent affected by the dynamic of peaceful coexistence, that's in scare quotes, with the old socialist societies, the Soviet orbit. In important aspects, this, this coexistence has contributed to the stabilization of capitalism. So-called, I mean, scare quotes, world communism has been the capital E enemy who would have to be invented if he did not exist. So every time he's using the word enemy, which shows up throughout this essay, capitalized, he's talking about communism. World communism is the enemy of the establishment. The enemy whose strength justified the so-called defense economy and the mobilization of the people in the national interest. Moreover, as the common enemy of all capitalism, communism promoted the organization of a common interest superseding the intercapitalist differences and conflicts. There's a sensibility, uh, a common interest that's going to be judged by who? By stakeholders. Last but not least, the opposition within the advanced capitalist countries has been seriously weakened by the repressive Stalinist developments of socialism. So I told you the Khrushchev thing was, hit them hard, which made socialism not exactly an attractive alternative to capitalism. Yeah, no kidding. Well, the Mao that you praise isn't really a good one either there, buddy, but here we are. More recently, the break in the unity of the communist orbit, the triumph of the Cuban Revolution in Vietnam, and the Cultural Revolution in China have changed this picture. He's looking to China. That's great. That's good. Cuba. Excellent. The possibility of constructing socialism on a truly popular base without the Stalinist bureaucratization and the danger of a nuclear war is the imperialist answer to the emergence of this kind of socialist power has led to some sort of common interest between the Soviet Union on the one side and the United States on the other. So he's saying that the Soviet Union and the United States were teamed up against a truly free um a, a truly free socialist power that's that he envisions in this liberation thing with the new proletariat that he's trying to put together. In a sense, he says, this is indeed the community of interests of the haves against the have-nots, of the old against the new. The collaborationist policy of the Soviet Union necessitates the, pers the pursuance of power politics, which increasingly reduces the prospect that Soviet society, by virtue of its basic institutions alone, 
abolition of private ownership and control of the means of production, a planned economy, is still capable of making the transition to a free society. And yet, the very dynamic of imperialist expansion places the Soviet Union in the other camp. Would the effective resistance in Vietnam and the protection of Cuba be possible without Soviet aid? However, while we reject the unqualified convergence thesis according to which, at least at present, the assimilation of interest prevails upon the conflict between capitalism and Soviet socialism, we cannot minimize the essential difference between the latter and the new historical efforts to construct socialism by developing and creating a genuine solidarity between the leadership and the liberated victims of exploitation. Now, I might have to read that again to make sure the context sticks for the rest of this paragraph, but let me pause for a second. The unqualified convergence thesis... 1969, Derek Bell writing about his interest convergence thesis in the early 1970s. Hmm. Hmm. Interest convergence thesis being one of the core assumptions of critical race theory. Hmm. Wonder where these guys are sharing. All these ideas are coming together. You can see the neo-Marxism underneath the, the Derek Bell scholarship that led to critical race theory, for example, very clearly. So here we have all of this looking at how the allegedly the the, the capitalist United States and communist or Soviet, I guess, um, USSR are apparently colluding to keep out the revolution of, of true liberation movement that, that would, would just depose these old powers versus this new revolutionary thing that he thinks is going to be a completely different kind of world. And he calls it that he says there's a convergence thesis. So they have converging interests, and that's why this, a lot of the things that were happening at the time were happening. But he says, uh, the assimilation of interest prevails upon the conflict between capitalism and Soviet socialism, so we cannot minimize the essential difference between the latter and the new historical efforts to construct socialism by developing, creating a genuine solidarity. So solidarity is going to be the pathway to this new liberated approach. By creating a genuine solidarity between the leadership and the liberated victims of exploitation, the actual may, be consider may considerably deviate from the ideal. The fact remains that for a whole generation quote, freedom, quote, socialism, and quote, liberation are inseparable from Fidel and Che and the guerrillas, not because their revolutionary struggle could furnish the model for the struggle in the metropoles, but because they have recaptured the truth of those ideas. In the day-to-day -day fight of men and women for a life as human be excuse me, in the day-to-day -day fight of men and women for a life as human beings for a new life. Okay. Fidel and Che are who he invokes here. He talked about the Chinese Cultural Revolution positively just a moment ago. And so for a whole generation, he says, words like freedom, socialism, and liberation can only really be conceived of in terms of Fidel and Che and the guerrillas. Why? Not because that their model works in, in Western cities, but because they have recaptured the truth of the ideas, the liberation ideas. And in the day-to-day -day fight of men and women for a life as human beings, for a new life. Is that what you got in Cuba, though? Is that what we got in Cuba? We just had, of course, this huge thing happen in Cuba. The regime tried to tell us it had something to do with COVID vaccines and access to them. But it was a re giant rejection of communism after the possibly the pressure of the pandemic led this thing to crack open. Cuba did not turn out as a great experiment. That new life 
that day-to-day fight of men and women for a life as that's life as human beings what what people were had imposed upon them in cuba who flee to florida because cuba sucks and so what is what does marcuse say about this well what kind of life that's what he asks what kind of life we are still confronted with the demand to state the concrete alternative that's in scare quotes also. The demand is meaningless if it asks for a blueprint of the specific institutions and relationships which would be those of the new society. They cannot be determined a priori. They will develop in trial and error as the new society develops. Okay, so this is my whole thesis of communism doesn't know how in a sentence. So we just said we have to look at Fidel Castro. We have to look at the guerrillas. We have to look at the Chinese Cultural Revolution. We have to look at Che Guevara. We have to look at what's going on. That's the model. People fighting. They've rediscovered the truth of a new life and a better life. And what kind of life? That's literally, he asks, what kind of life? And he says, well, people ask us to tell you what that's going to look like, the concrete alternative. Yeah. Well, that demand is meaningless. We don't know. That's what he says. It's meaningless if it asks for a blueprint, because communism doesn't know how, of the specific institutions and relationships which would be those of the new society. They have no idea what it's going to look like. And he says, in fact, they cannot be determined a priori. Before we get there, we can't know. We have to build the plane while we fly it. He doesn't say that, but that's what it's suggesting. That's a hell of a metaphor. They will develop, he says, in trial and error as the new society develops. How? The dictatorship of the enlightened, of the Gnostics, of the liberated Gnostics, or liberation Gnostics, you put those people in power, whether it's the anti-racist, whether it's the trans lobby, whether it's whatever it happens to be, whether it's these Che Guevara and Fidel Castro, you put them in charge and they're going to, through trial and error, they're going to work out the contradictions and they're going to lead us through this administered state into the revolution, through the revolution, uh, through this administered state that's like socialism, but better into the utopia that's liberated in the end. He says, if we could form a concrete conception, a concept of the alternative today, it would not be that of an alternative. So he says, we can't even think about it. That's why we need to do sensibility. We can't even think of what this would look like. And this is, of course, he's echoing Theodore Adorno, who around the same time, a little bit before this, was writing, after he wrote Negative Dialectic, he's writing, there's no way to positively cast an image of the utopia. The utopia can only be conceived of in the negative. So when we read in Henry Giroux, where he talks about what the utopia is, I did this entry on the encyclopedia because it was so shocking to me when I read Giroux and saw this. He says, the utopia isn't a place or a way of being, it is the potential for a life without oppression. The utopia is the potential. In other words, it's their fever dream of a communist society. So he says, if we could form a concrete concept of the alternative today, it would not be that of an alternative because they don't know what it would look like. And in fact, they say their own, the own, the critical theorists themselves say you can't possibly look at what it would look like. We can't know, but we'll figure it out as we go. Just give us all the power. And they don't have a plan except to take the power and have the consciousness and to use the consciousness in the power, which has failed literally every time, catastrophically, which it will do again. And right now the overlords are the people like Klaus Schwab and George Soros and the World Economic Forum and the Open Society Foundation and the International Monetary Fund that are trying to do this with their stupid stakeholder capitalism public-private partnership model. That's exactly the thing. But he says the possibilities of the new society are sufficiently abstract that is removed from and incongruous with the established universe to defy any attempt to identify them in terms of this universe. That's a powerful world word, universe. They are 
The possibilities of the new society. This is the target. This is the utopia. This is what Marcuse says we have to be liberated to get to. Are sufficiently removed from and incongruous with the established universe. So that they defy any attempt to identify them in terms of this universe. You can't even think about them. You, there's no positive image of the utopia. However, he says the question cannot be brushed aside by saying that what matters today is the destruction of the old, of the powers that be, making way for the emergence of the new. Such an answer neglects the essential fact that the old is not simply bad, that it delivers the goods, and that people have a real stake in it. Stakeholders. There can be societies which are much worse there are such societies today. The system of corporate capitalism has the right to insist that those who work for its replacement justify their action. But the demand to state the concrete alternatives is just another... Sorry. But the demand to state the concrete alternatives is justified for yet another reason. Negative thinking draws whatever force it may have from its empirical basis, the actual human condition in the given society, and the given possibilities to transcend this condition to enlarge the realm of freedom. In this sense, negative thinking is by virtue of its own internal concepts positive, oriented toward and comprehending a future which is contained in the present. Every time people yell at me for saying that this is alchemy, that this is alchemy, that this is hermeticism, every time they yell at me, I want to just read that sentence again. This is exactly the same thing, by the way, Adorno said, I think he's probably ripping Adorno off here, when Adorno said there's no positive, you can, there's no way to positively cast a utopia, then he, an image of the utopia, and then he goes on and says that the utopia is an inherently negative concept. If you don't know, utopia, the word utopia means nowhere. It was used by Thomas Mann in a story he wrote explaining what a perfect society would look like, and he called the place nowhere because he knew that it didn't work in reality. Uh, it couldn't be real, but that's what they're focused on. It's that which you cannot envision. It is that which is not. And when I say this is alchemy, where you're going to make something out of nothing, or you're going to turn, you're going to try to turn the mundane base metal, if you will, the lead, the mundane into the transcendent, or you're going to turn lead into gold, you're going to turn the mundane into the glorious. This is what I'm talking about. This is alchemical thinking, which he took from Hegel. Hegel was an alchemist. This i I'm telling you, and I'm going to read this sentence again. This is alchemy. In this sense, negative thinking is by virtue of its own internal concepts positive, oriented toward and comprehending a future which is contained in the present. The idea of alchemy is that the lead contains seeds of gold. The base metal contains seeds of the transcendent metal. The fallen world contains seeds of the perfect society. And if you can strip off the negative, there it is. And this is the argument that he's giving right after he says that people have a right to demand an argument. Negative thinking is by virtue of its own internal concepts positive, oriented toward and comprehending a future which is contained in the present. And in this containment, which is an important aspect of the general containment policy pursued by the established societies, the future appears as possible liberation. That's what what uh, Henry Drew said, possible liberation. That's utopia. It is not the only alternative. The advent of a long period of civilized barbarism 
with or without the nuclear destruction, is equally contained in the present. Negative thinking and the praxis guided by it is the positive and positing effort to prevent this utter negativity. So he's saying critical theory is going to be the only way basically to avoid a nuclear war. That's a possible outcome for right now. And if we can strip away all of this dominating, all these dominating ideas and all this power structures and blah, 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 then the future, which is liberated, a possible liberation can be extracted, can, can blossom really out of the present that contains it. All we have to do is focus on enlarging the realm of freedom and use negative thinking to, to, to cut down on, use critical theory to cut down on anything that he says constrains freedom, which are going to be systems of power primarily in neo-Marxist theory. It's going to be capitalism itself. It's going to be everything that he hates in the corporate capitalist society. The concept of the primary initial institutions of liberation is familiar enough and concrete enough. Collective ownership, collective control and planning of the means of production and distribution. That's the initial, that's the starting place for this new thing that's supposed to emerge out of what we have. The concept of the primary initial institutions of liberation is familiar enough and concrete enough. So he's been asked to give a concrete vision for where things are going. He says, well, I can't, it's not possible, but the initial part, we'll figure it out as we go. But the first part's easy, collective ownership, collective control and planning of the means of production and distribution. This is the foundation. We might call it equity. He doesn't say that, but we might. This is the foundation, a necessary but not sufficient condition for the alternative. The necessary condition to begin for his stupid program to a more free future is collective ownership, collective control and planning of the means of production and distribution. Fucking communism. That is the foundation, a necessary but not sufficient condition for the alternative. It would make possible the usage of all available resources for the abolition of poverty, which is the prerequisite for the turn from quantity into quality, the creation of a reality in accordance with the new sensitivity and the new consciousness. Equity. This goal implies rejection of those policies of reconstruction, no matter how revolutionary, which are bound to perpetuate or to introduce the pattern of the unfree societies and their needs. We need a dictatorship of the anti-racists, the Department of Anti-Racism that will examine all policies for uh, the ways that they, they reproduce principles of anti-racism or whatever. What did he actually say? To fix the original sin of racism, this is Ibram Kendi, Americans should pass an anti-racist amendment to the U.S. Constitution that enshrines two guiding anti-racist principles. He spelled it wrong. <laughs> so smart. Racial inequity is evidence of racist policy, and the different racial groups are equals. The amendment would make unconstitutional racial inequity over a certain threshold, as well as racist ideas by public officials. It would establish and permanently fund the Department of Anti-Racism, DOA, comprised of formally trained experts on racism, critical race theorists, people with the proper consciousness, and no political appointees. The DOA would be responsible for pre-clearing all local, state, and federal public policies to ensure they won't yield racial inequity. Monitor, this is negative thinking, by the way, monitor those policies investigate private racist policies when racial inequity surfaces and monitor public officials for expressions of racist ideas. The DOA would be empowered with disciplinary tools to wield over and against policymakers and public officials who do not voluntarily change their racist policies and ideas. That's Ibram Kendi in 2019, and all he's spouting off is the same thing that Herbert Marcuse said right here in 1969. And I'm told you, dictatorship of the anti-racists is another podcast. Dictatorship of the proletariat is what is replacing it would make 
possible the usage of all available resources for the abolition of poverty, which is a prerequisite for the turn from quantity into quality, the creation of a reality in accordance with the new sensitivity and the new consciousness. There you go. Then we're back in Marcuse. This goal implies rejection of those policies. Oh, that's where we were. This is sorry. I skipped. I got too excited. I changed my windows. This goal, this is Ibram Kennedy. This is Marcuse, but Ibram Kennedy, this is the thing. This goal implies rejection of those policies of reconstruction, no matter how revolutionary, which are bound to perpetuate or introduce the pattern of the unfree societies and other needs. That sentence right there is what Ibram Kennedy just gibbered with his stupid anti-racist constitutional amendment. That's a terrible idea. Such false policy is perhaps best summed up in the formula, quote, to catch up with and to overtake the productivity level of the advanced capitalist countries. I wonder who actually said that because it's not cited here. What is wrong with this formula is not the emphasis on the rapid improvement of the material conditions, but on the model guiding their improvement. The model denies the alternative, the qualitative difference. This is why it has to be anti-racist, right? The latter is not and cannot be the result of the fastest possible attainment of capitalist productivity, but rather the development of new modes and ends of production. New, that's in quotes, not only and perhaps not at all with respect to the technical innovations and production relations, but with respect to the different human needs and the different human relationships in working for the satisfaction of these needs. We're looking at fourth industrial revolution nonsense right there. These new relationships will be the result of a biological solidarity in work and purpose expressive of a true harmony between social and individual needs and goals, equity, between recognized necessity and free development, the exact opposite of the administered and enforced harmony organized in the advanced capitalist and socialist, that's with a question mark, country, countries. It is the image of this solidarity as elemental, instinctual, as elemental, instinctual, creative force, which the young radicals see in Cuba, in the guerrillas, and in the Chinese Cultural Revolution. Hell of a set of things to invoke there. So that's what solidarity is about. What we see in the Cultural Revolution, what we see happening in Cuba, what we see happening with Che Guevara, that's solidarity. That's what we're looking for. That's what we need. That's because it's not just going to be enough to change the thing at the level of capitalism. We have to change something much more deeply. We have to change the biological solidarity of work and purpose. He says our needs are going to have to align in solidarity, the need to overthrow all oppression. We need a dictatorship of the anti-racist. Solidarity and cooperation kind of a subsection, not all of their forms are liberating. Fascism and militarism have developed a deadly efficient solidarity. Socialist solidarity is autonomy. Self-determination begins at home, and that is with every I and the we whom the I chooses. And this end must indeed appear in the means to attain it. That is to say, in the strategy of those who, within the existing society, work for the new one. So people who are liberationists, they're all in solidarity with one another. They become the new family. They are the we whom the I chooses. If the socialist relationship of productions are to be a new way of life, a new capital F form of life, then their existential quality must show forth, anticipated and demonstrated in the fight for their realization. Exploitation in all its forms must have disappeared from this fight, from the work relationships among the fighters, as well as from their individual relationships. So this is where you see concepts in critical race theory, like uh, epistemic exploitation. 
maybe that's in the social justice literature in the past 10 years. It's, um, what's her name? Uh, it's on the tip of my tongue. She's from the University of Tennessee. Anyway, I know who she is. Nora Berenstain. I knew it was something like, like that. Yeah, Nora Berenstain. So she puts out this idea of epistemic exploitation. That's where if you ask a black person what it's like to experience racism and they teach you, you've exploited them in this emotional labor that they had to go through because they had to think about racism and re-experience racism and, and re-articulate in themselves the trauma of racism so that they could tell you what racism is and you should just do the work of going and reading existing things where people have already done that work and not force other people to do it. Here we have Marcuse saying under the heading of, of creating solidarity, exploitation in all of its forms must have disappeared from this fight. The fight being the revolutionary fight. So we're going to name epistemic exploitation as a problem that white allies are not allowed to do. And that's why there are all these power structures and struggles within allyship. And solidarity, as we wrote in our rewrite of Mein Kampf, becomes the thing that has to replace it. Understanding, he says, tenderness toward each other, the instinctual consciousness of that which is evil, false, the heritage of oppression, would then testify to the authenticity of the rebellion. In short, the economic, political, and cultural features of a classless society must have become the basic needs of those who fight for it. So people have to not know how to function in a society that doesn't have economic, political, and cultural features of a classless society. And that's going to be all the classes, not just economic class, by the way. This ingression of the future into the present, this depth dimension of the rebellion accounts in the last analysis for the incompatibility with the traditional forms of the political struggle. The new radicalism militates against the centralized bureaucratic communist as well as against the semi-democratic liberal organization. Except they don't because they're totally in love with the power that they're getting by becoming the centralized bureaucratic, not necessarily communist, but it's like almost communo-fascist public-private partnership thing that's paying the crap out of them. There is a strong element of... They love, by the way, the, the, the Disney would, would force people to go through diversity training on their terms and, and force them into it. They absolutely love the idea that the schools are going to indoctrinate kids. They absolutely love the idea that Coca-Cola is forcing its employees to learn to be less white. They're all about the idea that Colin Kaepernick is going to get crazy money for doing his stupid corporate deals with Disney and Nike, etc. They absolutely love the idea that corporations like Twitter and Facebook are going to censor ideas in accordance with what they want. They love their power. So they're, Marcuse would say, oh, well, the the old sensibility maintained and they did it wrong and so Marcusean nonsense is never going to be falsified because it's a stupid religion it says there's a strong element of spontaneity even anarchism in this rebellion expression of the new sensibility sensitivity against domination the feeling the awareness that the joy of freedom and the need to be free must precede liberation so you feel antifa's seeds right here although antifa carnet already existed then um, therefore the aversion against the pre-established leaders, apparatchiks of all sort, politicians, no matter how leftist. <laughs> Sorry, Ted Wheeler. How's Portland going for you? The initiative shifts to small groups widely diffused with a high degree of autonomy, mobility, and flexibility. Like I said, here's where you see the roadmap for Antifa. To be sure, within the repressive society and against its ubiquitous apparatus, spontaneity by itself cannot possibly be a radical and revolutionary force. It can become such a force only as the result of enlightenment education political practice, in other words, by taking up Marxian theory, and in this sense, indeed, as a result of organization. The anarchic 
element is an essential factor in the struggle against domination, preserved but disciplined in the preparatory political action, it will be freed and aufgehoben in the goals of the struggle. So we're going to have Antifa come out, and it's going to look like it's all fascist, but that's okay because in the process of doing what it does, especially once it gains power and breaks down the existing society, the dialectic is going to step in and free it from its actual fascist character. So that's why they're on the right side of history, even though the anti-fascists are blatantly fascists. Because in the end, the dialectic, they have the right mindset, they have the right consciousness, they're taking the justified repressive actions, and liberatory actions that are, are, are to be tolerated, etc., like we saw in repressive tolerance. And as a result, when that works, the dialectic will step in and they will actually be the, seen as the true freedom fighters. Released, he says, for the construction of the initial revolutionary institutions, the anti-repressive sensibility allergic to domination would militate against the prolongation of the, quote, first phase. That is the authoritarian bureaucratic development of the productive forces. In other words, there's your dictatorship of the proletariat that was going to seize the means of production, the stagism of Leninism and Stalinism and Maoism, which he's denying at this point. He says they would militate against that. They're not going to go the, Mao, the, the Stalinist route. They're not going to go the Leninist route. They're not going to have the, the, the Antifa is going to be against that too because they're allergic to domination. That's what he says. And they would militate against the, the prolongation, not the existence of, that first phase. So they get to be the thugs, but they're not going to be for the prolongation of the thuggery. Because it'll work, right? Because they all have the right view. That's what they think. This is Marcuse's stupid vision. And the new society, he said, could then reach relatively fast the level at which poverty could be abolished. Equity. This level could be considerably lower than that of advanced capitalist productivity, which is geared toward obscene affluence and waste. So when Helen and I wrote in Cynical Theories that equal access to a pile of rubble is not a worthy goal, here he say, we'll just call it equity for the moment. He doesn't use that word, but we'll use that. That word arose, by the way, this was happening. He's laying out this theory, and eventually what happened was the other theories like social equity theory and whatever came into being, and then some stupid judge decided somewhere along the lines that equity is a good enough, you know, you can't do X, Y, or Z, but if the goal is equity, that's okay. And or diversity, that's okay. And then the buzzword gets attached to it, and that becomes the new thing, that they, the new co-opted language that they've stolen and made use of. And so he says, you know, the, 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 the new society could then reach relatively fast the level at which equity exists, this level could be considerably lower than that of advanced capitalist productivity. So everybody's going to have a worse life, but at least everybody's going to be equal. He's just saying it. And he says, but that's justified though, because the capitalist productivity is geared to obscene affluence and waste. So we can't have billionaires because that's obscene affluence. We can't have waste. That's bad. We need a sustainable circular economy. And you're starting to see the pieces of the world coming together. This, this was laid out a long time ago. Then the development, he says, could tend toward a sensuous culture. There's your orgy with Klaus Schwab. Then the development could tend toward a sensuous culture, tangibly contrasting with the gray-on-gray -gray culture of the so socialist societies of Eastern Europe. Production would be redirected in defiance of all the rationality of the performance principle. Socially necessary labor would be diverted to the construction of an aesthetic rather than a repressive environment to parks and gardens rather than highways and parking lots. 
through the creation of areas of withdrawal rather than massive fun and relaxation. I told you they hate fun. Such redistribution of socially necessary labor time, incompatible with any society governed by the profit and performance principle, would gradually alter society in all its dimensions. It would mean the ascent of the aesthetic principle as a form of the reality principle. A culture of receptivity based on the achievements of industrial civilization and initiating the end of its self-propelling productivity. Almost like you're creating a circular economy. Almost like you're creating a huge throttle on, uh, what do you call it, a throttling of it, like a governor on productivity and calling it sustainability. And we're going to reorganize the entire economy around sustainability and make a so-called circular economy that doesn't do the waste. And we won't have any billionaires except for the oligarchs that run all this crap because obscene affluence. But they're they're not really oligarchs because something about aesthetic principles and forms or some nonsense theory, right? The end of industrial civilization, self-propelling productivity, circular economy. Not regression to a previous stage of civilization, Marcuse tells us, but return to an imaginary temps perdu in the real life of mankind, progress to a stage of civilization where man has learned to ask for the sake of whom or what he organizes his society, stakeholders, the stage where he checks and perhaps even halts his incessant struggle for existence on an enlarged scale, sustainability, surveys what has been achieved through centuries of misery and hecatombs of victims, and decides that it is enough that it is time to enjoy what he has and what can be reproduced and refined with a minimum of alienated labor, not the arrest or reduction of technical progress, but the elimination of those of its features which perpetuate man's subjection to the apparatus and the intensification of the struggle for existence, to work harder in order to get more of the merchandise that has to be sold. So, Mar- so Marcuse's entire vision of the world is that capitalism makes people work harder and harder and harder to get more stuff that they don't really want because that stuff has to be sold to justify the perpetuation of capitalism. It's a really dark and criti- it is a critical theory view of what capitalism is and does. And he says that we got a break from that. And what we're seeing in the world right now is exactly the attempt to reorganize the entire world economy in accordance with that. That's what the Great Reset is about. COVID-19 is the great opportunity to create the Great Reset. That's exactly what this is about, to move into a stakeholder economy that's going to operate in a circular way, run by a public-private partnership and keeping track, uh, track of the interests of stakeholders, yada, yada, yada. And it's going to work allegedly not the arrest the reduction to not arrest or reduce technical progress how that's supposed to happen i'm not sure but he says the goal is to eliminate those of its features which perpetuate man's subjection to the apparatus and the intensification of the struggle for existence so in other words he says electrification indeed so a digital world. Everything's going to be done by machines, electrification indeed, and all technical devices which alleviate and protect life, COVID passports, all the mechanization which frees human time and energy, sorry, human energy and time, I want to be accurate, all the standardization which does away with spurious and parasitic 
parasitarian person parasitarian as a parasite i suppose those are with spurious and parasitarian personalized services so everything's going to be standardized now rather than multiplying them in the gadgets and tokens of exploitative affluence in terms of the latter and only in terms of the latter this would certainly be a regression but freedom from the rule of merchandise over man is the precondition of freedom crazy 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 the construction of a free society would create he says this is the last paragraph of this godforsaken essay the construction of a free society would create new incentives for work yeah that's working out ubi is going to incentivize people to work i'm sure the construction of a free society would create new incentives for work and the exploitative societies the so-called work instinct is mainly the more or less effectively interjected necessity to perform productively in order to earn a living but the life instincts themselves strive for the unification and enhancement of life like are we talking like transhumanism here in non-repressive sublimation they would provide the libidinal energy for work on the development of a reality which no longer demands the exploitative repression of the pleasure principle <laughs> new incentives for work emerge the pleasure principle so i guess we're all like cam girls now the incentives would then be built into the instinctual structure of men their sensibility would register as biological reactions the difference between the ugly and the beautiful between calm and noise tenderness and brutality intelligence and stupidity joy and fun fun bad joy good apparently it would correlate this distinction with that between freedom and servitude freud's last theoretical conception recognizes the erotic instincts as the work instincts work for the creation of a sensuous environment the social expression of the liberated work instinct is cooperation here back to communism which grounded in solidarity directs the organization of the realm of necessity and the development of the realm of freedom cooperation grounded in solidarity apparently directs the organization of the realm of necessity and the development of the realm of freedom it's like tell me you're communist without daring to say that you're communist that's what this whole thing is and there's an answer to the question which troubles the minds of so many men of goodwill what are the people in a free society going to do so that's this is funny i'm going to pause here there's literally two sentences left in this whole freaking long essay on liberation and he finally comes to the point what are people in a liberated society going to do so he's already talked about how marx believed you know in the liberated communism people would be, have all the time to hunt and fish they already talked about everybody's going to be free to become a creative class they're going to be content creators and influencers everybody's going to be a TikTok star and somehow everybody gets to eat even though all they do is jerk around on their phone well marcusa answers this question this pressing question of what the point of communism is and he has two whole sentences to do it that's how seriously communism doesn't know how that's how serious these people take this and so let's just read that again and there's an answer he says there is an answer he says now i want you to listen to the answer because he says there is an answer you're about to not hear an answer let me just spoiler alert you and there is an answer to the question which troubles the minds of so many men of goodwill what are the people in a free society going to do if they don't have to go to work people gain meaning from work people justify the fact that they get to eat for work by work they get to build things through their work 
What on earth will they do if they don't have to work? That's the question. What are the people in a free society going to do? There is an answer, he says. It is the answer which I believe strikes at the heart of the matter was given by a young black girl. I really wonder if it's Angela Davis. The answer which I believe strikes at the heart of the matter was given by a young black girl. She said, For the first time in our life, we shall be free to think about what we are going to do. How about that? What are we going to do? We can figure it out when we get there. Just give us all the power. We will, for the first time in our lives, be free to think about what we are going to do. Finally, we'll be given the opportunity to think about what we're going to do. What are we going to do when we're free? We're going to be able to think about what we're going to do. That's his answer. That's his answer. Communism doesn't know how. It doesn't have the slightest idea what it's talking about. What are we going to do when we have our UBI-driven, stakeholder, circular economy, sustainability, blah, blah, blah. Well, for the first time in our lives, we'll be free to think about what we are going to do. They don't know. They don't have the slightest idea. This whole thing is a giant, giant fraud. And so that concludes our reading of Herbert Marcuse's 1969 essay on liberation. I'm going to try to find some more juicy, fun reading material. I really want to read the introduction to critical race theory an introduction. Oh, no, sorry, the key writings, not an introduction, that's Delgado. I want to read the key writings that form the movement, but the introduction to it is very long, so it'll be a very long series to read all of it. It's totally insane. It tells you everything you need to know about critical race theory in its own words, which is different from everything you need to know about it in my own words, which I'm writing down now. I'm probably going to publish it as the critical, uh, the, the New Discourses Guide to Critical Race Theory, ASAP. My thing I did in Tampa, my workshop in Tampa basically mirrors that. And so we'll try to get those videos, the book out. But here we have the essay on liberation, and it is properly crazy pants. So to summarize briefly, part one, a biological foundation for socialism means we have to make people psychopathological so that they won't be able to tolerate the society they live in. This is going to help us generate a new proletariat to rise up. Part two, a new sensibility. We have to break with the old sensibility. I argue the intersectionality, but also the, now I'm, I just stumbled upon it as I went through this time, the sustainability stuff becomes a new sensibility for a whole new way of thinking about the world. And we're all going to be liberated. We aren't going to know what to do, but we'll be able to think about what we're going to do. And then finally, what we end up with is the subverting forces in transition. That's part three of this, this series. You, we, we, we see that there's going to be this new way of doing a new clownish way of doing activism and our new proletariat starting to be identified. What is this new proletariat? Well, partly it is that leftist intelligentsia in the students that these good neo-Marxist professors are training. And those people are going to tie into the radical energy of the ghetto populations, the dispossessed, angry, militant black activists, queer activists, feminist activists, and so on. They're going to tap into that. They're going to pull that into this. And what we're going to do to create a movement for this is we're going to do this. We're going to iron it together with solidarity. And the first place we're going to look for solidarity is we're going to look to solidarity to these liberation movements like the National Liberation Fronts, the Viet Cong, the the, the revolution that's taking was taking place taken place I guess at this point in Cuba we're going to look to Che Guevara and the in the guerrillas we're going to wage a guerrilla warfare against the existing society we're going to subvert it and tear it down from within and um, 
the Chinese Cultural Revolution is a great model for what we want to be doing, which is funny because the Chinese model that has now evolved not out of Mao, but out of Deng Xiaoping eventually, which has fused fascism and communism, a dialectical fusion of fascism and communism, becomes the model upon which this so-called stakeholder capitalism uh, and circular economy that they're trying to institute uh, throughout the West right now, the COVID is the pretext for changing everything, becomes... Uh, visible, and we all have to be solidarity. We're all in this together. COVID, right? We're all in this together. Solidarity, and we're all gonna. We, we can have our freedom back once we give it all away. And what are we gonna do when we finally have our freedom back? Well, for the first time in our life, we shall be free to think about what we are going to do. That is what is on offer. That is essay on liberation. And again, I tell you, we live in Herbert Marcuse's world. We don't want to live in Herbert Marcuse's world. We really want to understand this so that we can push back against this, so that we can fight back against this. Negative thinking, he said, <laughs> negative thinking is by virtue, he said, of its own internal concepts positive because of alchemy. And alchemy doesn't work. Alchemy is intellectual terrorism. It's not going to work. Um, all we're going to do is create poison. We're, we're, we're going to be drinking the equivalent of, we're doing the societal equivalent of drinking mercury. We're driving ourselves mad and eventually we're going to die. Um, mad as a hatter because of the mercury and, and the, the dyes or whatever it was they used to treat the hats. That's where that comes from. So, essay on liberation, terrible, scary thing, explains so much along with uh, repressive tolerance, as would One Dimensional Man. I'm not going to read that whole book into a podcast series but uh, explains so much about what's going on in our world today. We live in Herbert Marcuse's world. The radical activists that he was gathering up around him, that he appealed to, it was the ghetto populations, etc., and the liberation people. These, these radicals have reshaped our world, and we are at the cusp of them taking power into this whole new circular economy, sustainability paradigm. They was his kind of vision in some sense all along without ever being able to clearly spell it out because he says you can't actually give an articulation what it looks like. And so now is the moment. Now is the point. Now you know more about what's going on. It is so important to stand up against this, to fight against this, and to start saying no. Most importantly, though, you know, we've got our mama bear showing up at schools. I'm just going to throw out, this usually is supposed to not be about advice, but the closing word I've mentioned this stakeholder thing over and over and over again, and you hear the relevance of this stakeholder thing. Marcuse's business world is a stakeholder economy. If you are a shareholder, you have been screwed over by this, and you are being screwed over by this, probably illegally, and you need to be showing up just like the mama bears to school boards and their, their the, the dads to school boards, and you need to be going off about how these big companies that you are a shareholder in are violating the trust and agreement that they have with you. You need to be showing up just like people are showing up to school boards to fight back. This needs to be fought back out of the corporations as well. And it doesn't start until you realize that they're turning your corporations into a Marcusean communo-fascist vision. And they have probably lied to you and violated your shareholder contract to do it uh, because they knew they were going to do this and have been making decisions this way for a while. And uh, you probably weren't even aware of it. So your shareholderness is much less valuable than being a stakeholder. Being a stakeholder means that you're one of these fancy pants oligarch experts, technocrats who understands how all the sustainability stuff, ESG, is supposed to work. And they have sold you out and probably done so uh, definitely unethically, but possibly illegally. It'd be good if you started to show up and yell about that. Um, pushing this out of the corporations is crucial and understanding the relevance of what we just read in this section 
to how that has come to be and what the vision of it is. And we all know where it goes because he doesn't know either. It goes into the dumpster. If this uh, is going to be a catastrophe, China is like a best case scenario. And if we want to turn the West into China with no freedom and social credits, etc., that's where this is all headed. And you can see it here in Marcuse's 1969 essay on liberation, if you know what you're reading. So fight back, fight back now, fight back hard. I'll catch you in the next one.